Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm David Cobb, your host. I am the Redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do so as well. Because for me, going green means, yes, deep ecology, understanding the interconnectedness of life itself and the need for sustainability. It also means the Green Party. It means a political party that refuses to take corporate money, a political party that is absolutely committed to the four pillars of peace, justice, democracy, and ecology. Uh, and I want to remind you that here on Redneck Gone Green, we are a source of non-corporately filtered news, information, and analysis. So the algorithms work against us, y'all. So what I'm asking you to do, you know what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to like, to comment, and to share to help us build an audience here for Redneck Gone Green so we can continue to bring this weekly program where we push ourselves and you, the audience, around what is it that we need to know, what is it that we need to feel, and what is it that we need to do. And I feel like this show today is going to be a prime example of it because we're going to be talking to Dr. Anna Malino. Dr. Malino spent three decades working as a pediatrician with immigrant, refugee, and underserved children in Ohio, Texas, Pennsylvania, and California. She has retired now as a clinical professor of pediatrics from the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She's the past president of Physicians for a National Health Program. She's been featured on national and international television and radio programs. She is currently lead organizer for the National Single Payer and the Movement to End Privatization of Medicare. Dr. Anna Malino, welcome to Redneck Gone Green. David, it is such a pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much. Now, I need to get this out of the way uh, because, Anna, you and I know each other, don't we? From a long time ago. Yes, we do. You know, uh, so I just want to admit, y'all, so Anna and I were both co-organizers and I dare say co-founders of the Harris County Green Party of Texas. And I want to say as a doctor, right, I found I didn't know that Anna was a doctor. I just knew she was a social justice advocate. She joined us in the circle, helped set up the tears. We were talking about all the different things. So Anna is a doctor, an organizer, but a different type. And I'm when I saw that you were a national leader, of single payer, I was not surprised at all, Anna, but I was also really excited to get you onto this program so that you could help educate myself and our viewers about what is the state of the movement to bring healthcare as a fundamental human right to the United States. So tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with single payer. So, um, the state of the movement can either be really great news or not so good news. Um, the great news is that we have a lot of work ahead of us, uh, but that it is doable. And with all of us involved, I think that we can make a difference. The bad news, of course, is that, you know, um, our healthcare system, such as it is, is in, is in crisis, right? And um, but I, I kind of want to talk about what's what's right in our healthcare system, right? Because everybody's always talking doom and gloom. And I think that there's some things that are just really, really good about our healthcare system. So take a look at corporate profits, for example, right? In 2022, the revenues for the largest health insurance corporations was $1.25 trillion one year. 
and the combined profits of Moderna, BioNTech, and Pfizer that you know thankfully gave us the COVID vaccines. Well, their combined profits were during the the um, the pandemic, well, during COVID, uh, were $1,000 per second. So some things are going right in our healthcare system. The problem is, is that they're going right for the profiteers and the corporations and not for the people. And so, you know, Naomi Klein has said that our healthcare system should be a manifestation of our values. And the truth is, is that when you look at our values, if our values are to put profits above above health, to put corporations above people, then yes, those if those are our values, then our healthcare system is going to be what it is, which is, as we know, is, is, is broken, is in shambles. Uh, uh, we have uh, a very, very high maternal mortality rate, higher than peer nations. We have a high infant mortality rate. We have 110 million people who um, have medical debt. We have 30 million uninsured, 40 million underinsured, and we're about to even add more people to the roles of the uninsured because of the Medicaid unwinding. You know, only a country such as ours could have set up a healthcare system that is so racialized and so discriminatory that it has, you know, healthcare for the poor, it's gonna be this, and you're gonna have to, you know, apply for it month after month after month, and then healthcare for the rest uh, is going to be over here. So um, there are many reasons why we, we need a movement. And um, I'll be very happy to talk about our movement, which is National Single Payer. You can find out more about us uh, on our website, nationalsinglepayer.com. But um, if you have specific questions, uh, I can tell you, I, I don't want to keep on talking if, if you have questions for me right now. Well, and I, that, like, I, that was a fantastic opening. And I really appreciated the framing because I do want to get into specifics. I also, here on Redneck Gone Green, we tell the truth as we see it. Like you, we don't want to be doom and gloom, uh, but we want to actually assess like what is happening so that we can make plans to make the changes. One of the things that I, I take as a matter of faith is, oh, now that I understand how the healthcare system operates, it's either broken, one could say, it's certainly in crisis, right? But here's one of the things that I've realized. Oh, the problem is that in this country, we treat healthcare like a commodity to be bought and paid for to profit. And if you understand that, that that's the basic driving force, then you say, oh, well, the system is working because it's doing what it's designed to do to treat healthcare as a profit. And it's a commodity or as a commodity for a, a profit. And that's why you have one system for the poor and one system for the wealthy. And I would even argue an, yet another system, uh, you know, for uh, middle class folk. But here's the thing. If we believed our true moral principles and values, if we said, no, no, healthcare is a human right. And as a society, if you are sick or ailing or injured, as a society, we take care of each other right? It's not some abstraction called government. It's actually democracy. We take care of each other, right? So if we say that healthcare is a human right, that we want to ensure that anyone who has a need gets it met, then you'd say, well, this system is crazy. There's This, this doesn't work. And so to me, starting from a frame of, do we believe that healthcare is a human right? If we actually start with that question, then the conversation will go in a certain direction. And one of the things that I noticed about 
what y'all are doing at National Single Payer. And I do want to say, folks, go to nationalsinglepayer.com is you literally start from that premise. Absolutely. So we are a um, grassroots organization of individuals that um, work locally for national legislation, for national single payer. And we are bound by the principles that healthcare is a human right. So there you go. <laughs> that healthcare should be free from corporate profit and that we are going to achieve. And the only way that we're going to achieve uh, national single payer is through national legislation. We don't believe that this is something that can be uh, left to the, that a human right can be left to, to the states. And I'm sure, I'm sure this is gonna get me into hot water with all my friends and colleagues uh, and fellow activists here in California, but that is national single payer in a, in a nutshell. Uh, and we started actually in 2021, uh, right at the eve of um, President Biden's um, coming into office, because we recognized and we realized that, you know, suddenly we had a, a president uh, in the White House who was a Democrat. We had a Democratic Senate, and then we had a Democratic House of Representatives. And so everything really seemed to be aligned. Plus, we were in the middle of a pandemic, right? And so what more uh, do we need in order to say what we need national single payer? And this is how we're going to get it done, because we have a mandate. 60% uh, of Americans support national legislation for national single payer. Uh, and then we have all these Democrats in office, right? Plus a pandemic. And yet, and yet it became very, very clear to us that that was not going to happen. And uh, many of the activists around the country um, feeling this decided that we were just going to get together and start organizing a national movement for national single payer. And that's how, how we started in 2021. And, um, you know, we've we've been working ever since and we have different campaigns and people can go to our website uh, to to hear more about it. But basically, we believe that the root of the problem is that we have a profit driven, market driven healthcare system. And as long as we have profit at the center of our healthcare system, our healthcare system is going to continue to be in crisis and it's it's going to benefit the profiteers over the health of, of our nation. And I don't believe that the health of our nation should be held hostage um, for the profits of corporations. Well, you know, it's really interesting, Anna, because it's true. I've heard that 60% for specifically single payer. What's interesting is I've seen other studies that if you strip away and just ask, do you think uh, uh, healthcare if, if injured people should have access to health care, it goes up as high as 70%, right? So even if you don't talk about the single payer model, and we'll get into why uh, I believe and you believe that single payer is the way to ensure uh, to treat health care as a human right. I just want to point out that by every reasonable measurement, you see that there is genuine supermajority support uh, for this position within ordinary Americans. And that cuts across party labels. It cuts across ideologies, principled liberals, principled conservatives, uh, moderates, regardless of how people self-identify, there is strong support here. Right. I do want to lift up a comment that Z Manny, who uh, is a frequent listener and uh, commenter made 
Uh, Z Manny says, the healthcare industry is a prime example for how dangerous it is to use corporations to administer society. How their programming as profit vacuum cleaners leads them to distort the function. So thank you, Z Manny, because I think that that's just another way to describe Anna, what you were talking about, corporate profits and allowing health insurance to make and insurance adjusters and claims adjusters to make decisions about access to healthcare, it's absurd, right? Like, like th this idea of, of, of claims adjusters having to go through that process. I mean, if you're my doctor, uh, like I, I can't just rely on and do what the doctor might say. We literally have insurance adjusters and insurance corporations uh, that are deciding what I'm allowed or not allowed to have. Right. It's this American exceptionalism because you don't see that anywhere else in the world. So, but here explain, the so explain to folks when you say American exceptionalism, that's a, for me, a highly charged word. I think it's absolutely accurate, but I want to invite you to explain why did you use the term American exceptionalism in this context? Well, there, it is a highly charged uh, word, obviously, and it, and it's, uh, you know, comes from our American uh, imperialism. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the way that I was using it here in healthcare is that we are exceptional, but uh, really we are, we're alone much more than exceptional when it comes to healthcare. Because when you do compare our, our outcomes to other peer nations, we don't do as well. And when you compare our healthcare costs to peer nations, we outspend practically every other country by twice as much. So that's and, what I meant by American exceptionalism. And, and thank you. I, I knew that you'd, you'd nail it because this whole notion of imperialism, like, is this some idea? And I'll confess, I grew up on it, right? Like, you know, I was born in 62, Anna. So, and, you know, I, I remember as a little boy being taught that America was special. Uh, we were like the great shining light on the hill and that we would bring liberty, justice, democracy to the entire world. And Anna, I was so proud to be an American. I still remember that, right? And, it, I, it, and the thing is, that's a creation myth. And as I grew up, I realized, damn it, they lied to me. They lied to me. This like the, the founding of this country was actually a founding violence. It was a founding violence against the indigenous people who were already here. It was a founding violence against the enslaved Africans who were forced to build this country with slave labor. It was a founding violence against my ancestors who were brought here also in chains as indentured servants. I mean, like there's like once you understand the truth of, of the American exceptionalism, it becomes horrific. And with healthcare. It is equally exceptional, right? Because let me ask you this. Pop quiz, Dr. Anna Malino. How many industrialized countries do not have a single payer system to be able to guarantee health care? So, so, well, um, single payer, again, is, is, it's, it's not universal. Oh, but, thank you. But, thank you. However, yeah, correct me. <laughs> However, uh, we are alone in not having a universal healthcare system for all of our residents. That is for sure. Right? Whereas we do it through um, single payer or through a national health service or um, in other ways, uh, that, that remains to be seen. We believe that the 
the best way to do it here in the United States would be to expand on an already proven program that has been around for 58 years and it's called Medicare. And so what we would need to do is simply uh, improve the Medicare that we have because the current Medicare right now has a lot of gaps and problems and costs associated with it. Uh, and then we would need to expand it from cradle to grave. And so it's interesting uh, and correct. And thank you for the correction, right? Like, because uh, one of the things that we really want to do here on Redneck Gone Green is be a place where we really educate each other. And so I, I uh, very much appreciate that correction. And it leads me to see if I've got it right. My understanding is that in the US, there are actually two single payer systems. There is Medicare, uh, which you uh, qualify for at the age of 65. And then there's a, a couple of other exceptions, but really uh, it, it came up and out of, uh, so uh, Medicare for uh, folks 65 and older. And then there's the Veterans Administration, which mm -hmm. is a single payer system. Is, is that right? Are those the two main single payer systems? So let's define what single payer means. Single payer means that you have public financing and private delivery of your healthcare system. So that's exactly what Medicare is. It is public financing and it is private delivery. Now, the VA also is a single payer system in that it is public financing, but it is more of a national health service because it has the public delivery of it as well. So physicians, hospitals, providers um, all work um, under the, the VA and it is, you know, sort of like owned by, by, by the VA. And so when you're a physician, you work for the VA rather than having your own private practice or working for a hospital system. So that's the difference um, between Medicare and the VA, um, despite the fact that both are single payer systems because they're both publicly financed. It's just the difference in, in the delivery of healthcare between. Got the it. And so, so for you and the folks at the, the, the uh, single payer nationalsinglepayer.com, uh, y'all are promoting a single payer payment system, uh, everybody in, nobody out, but to allow the private delivery of healthcare uh, through uh, individual physicians and so forth. And that's the distinguishing characteristic, more or less between the VA or Veterans Administration and how Medicare works. Exactly, exactly. And if you wanted to pull up one of our 12 guiding principles, um, I think that the, that the problem with the private delivery of healthcare is becoming more and more and more problematic. And our last, um, we have 12 guiding principles, and our last one talks about opening up the conversation to the possibility uh, that, that uh, a national health service could be placed on the nation's agenda. Because what is happening today is that our, our delivery system is being gobbled up more and more by private um, uh, insurance companies, by, you know, United Healthcare, which is the largest insurance company in, in the United States, also is the largest, um, uh, the, the largest employer of, of physicians in the United States. It, it employs 70,000 physicians. And, and um, it's being taken over by private insurance companies, by Medicare Advantage plans, by private equity firms, by venture capital firms, and uh, for for-profit hospital systems. And so what is happening to our delivery system is that even if we were to have a publicly financed healthcare system, such as uh, a Medicare for all, say, an improved Medicare for all, 
we would then be giving, you know, funneling our public tax dollars to these private equity firms and to Medicare Advantage, well, they wouldn't be Medicare Advantage plans anymore, but they would be private health insurance companies and so forth, that that would then be delivering the, the, the health care that, that we, we would be paying them for. So even though I believe that if we were to have a really great single payer bill, and we can talk a little bit about the, the two bills in Congress right now, um, HR 3421, which is HR, um, which is the, the one in, in the uh, in Congress, which I think is is is, is the better bill um, that still allows for for profit corporations to function in in our system. And I think that we need to start having a conversation about what what do we want to do with with our with our our dollars our, our public dollars um should the public system be truly public um who should own our our healthcare system right should the owners be um health insurance companies should the uh, the owners be um huge hospital systems that are consolidating and increasing prices uh, or should it be the community? Should it be the patients? And so I think that, that that's another conversation that uh, we need to start having outside of a, sort of a national single payer conversation. Now, well, thank you so much for bringing that up. And I'll tell you, you've already solicited or provoked uh, and instigated some conversation here on our comment section. So I'm going to go to Kelly and then Lewis. Kelly says, the insurance corporations take away the power. We pay them for insurance. They ideally work for us, and yet they dictate where, when, and if we get care, right? So it's kind of the big picture point that you made. I'm also now going to go to Lewis because Lewis has made a couple of points, and I want you to, to get a chance to respond to both Kelly and Lewis. Uh, Lewis says, Medi-Cal will pay for a root canal, the removal of the top of the tooth, and pay for the post, but does not cover the permanent caps for the tooth. Uh, the decision of medical insurances are about profit. Lewis goes on to say, Medicare only covers 80% of the medical services. State medical insurance covers 20%. I, I mean, is that right? I'll confess my own ignorance of this. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, Anna, I'm 61, right? I keep, I, like, I, I got that, that good socialized medicine in my track. I had this idea that when I hit 65, I'd qualify for all this. But now what I'm hearing is the Medicare system is actually in trouble and it's under attack. Well, okay. So both callers um, or viewers are, are, are correct to, to a certain extent. One is, yes, insurance companies take away power from us, uh, but they're not there to work for us at all. I, I, I think that that would be um, a, a, a naive way of putting it uh, because they're there to work for themselves and for their bottom lines and for their um, shareholders and CEOs and so forth. Um, the, so so it, it, the second caller, I think Lewis uh, brings up a really important point and that is the, um, the problems or the deficiencies in, in our Medicare system. And it is, so Medicare is made up of part A and B and A covers 100% of um, your hospital costs once you turn 65, 
or if you qualify for Medicare because you have ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, or you have end-stage renal disease, such as you know, people on dialysis. So it covers 100% of hospitalizations uh, of your hospital costs up until 60 days. After that, then, then, it, gets a, then, then it gets a little bit trickier. Um, there are deductibles, and I believe it's like $1,500 uh, per hospitalization every year. Uh, but for the most part, it, you know, A, uh, is, is, is great. You go to the hospital, covers 100% of your hospital costs. Part B, so that's just hospital, right? Because that leaves out a whole other section, which is uh, outpatient, right? When you go to your doctor, when you go to the specialist, when you get that CT, when you get the MRI, when you get your blood work, your, your chest X-ray, all of those costs are not covered by Part A, they're covered by Part B. And Part B uh, covers only 80% of those outpatient costs, which means that you as a patient are on the hook for the 20%, right, left over. And why do we even have a Part A and a Part B in Medicare? And most people don't even realize this, but you know, the passage of Medicare in 1965 was very, very hard fought. And um, there, there needed to be a lot of accommodation to, to special interests, such as hospitals, insurance companies, and doctors, plus Republicans and the Southern Democrats. And so what Medicare ended up being the sausage making at the end uh, of, of, of what passed as Medicare, uh, in 1965, had to accommodate all of those special players. And one way that it accommodated them is that it made Part A involuntary, maybe meaning that, David, when you turn 65, you're going to get an email from Medicare saying you are automatically, you know, once you pay into Social Security for 10 years, you automatically are eligible for, for A and, and you're going to get your, your Part A card. Now, Part B is voluntary. And so you have to sign up for it. Plus, you have to pay premiums every month uh, for that B and that and, and the premiums depend on your income. And then you're on the hook for the extra 20%. So, so the caller was, Lewis was correct. You are on the hook for the 20% of your outpatient costs. And so what a lot of people do is either they purchase a private health insurance plan to pay for that extra 20% that, that uh, Medicare B doesn't cover. And that's all that that health insurance plan will do. But it's very expensive. It can cost $300 or $350 per month per person. So, you know, if you're living on a fixed income, $350 a month uh, to pay for that, just that 20% that Medicare doesn't cover, is can be a lot of money. Um, some people that have great retiree benefits will then um, can can have their, their former employers pay for that 20%, which is great. Um, or their unions can pay for it. So, um, and there's a huge fight in New York City that if you want to, we can talk about what is happening there. But basically, um, A and B is called traditional or original Medicare, and it only and the outpatient costs are only covered 80%, and so you are on the hook for, for that um, other 20%. Now, that's just for people that are on what we call traditional Medicare, for people that choose to stay on traditional Medicare. However, um, you probably have heard that uh, about 50% of beneficiaries on Medicare now choose a private health insurance company or a private health insurance plan called Medicare Advantage to manage the care of their needs once they turn 65. And um, it's as if you didn't have enough of your private health insurance plan when you were 
uh, working. Now you can choose to have a private health insurance plan, manage your care, and decide when, where, and what uh, of your health care you're going to get uh, once you retire and you turn 65, or once you turn 65. Um, and the, the advantage of this Medicare Advantage is that uh, because it is overpaid by Medicare to provide these benefits uh, to the tune of about $75 billion a year, they can actually um, afford to offer low or no uh, cost premiums to individuals on Medicare. And so individuals that are now signing up for Medicare and they say, oh, wow, I either have to pay $350 uh, for this premium um, every single month, plus the B premiums, plus no out-of-pocket uh, caps, or I can choose this Medicare Advantage plan where I don't have to pay any uh, premiums at all, and they do cover my A and B and my uh, prescription drug costs, then uh, a lot of people are incentivized Plus, you know, the, the, the dental, the hearing, the vision, uh, the transportation, uh, the gym memberships, which traditional Medicare is actually prohibited from offering uh, Medicare beneficiaries. Then people look, look and, and they, they figure that it's a lot less expensive to um, join a Medicare Advantage plan. However, the problem is, is that once you need health care, then that's when people on Medicare Advantage run into problems because for 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 all of these you know gym memberships, what you do is you sign up for narrow networks, and so you have to go in the networks of the Medicare Advantage plan and prior authorizations as well, uh, and they do not include, for example, centers of excellence if you are diagnosed with a rare cancer. So there are a lot of downsides, a lot of disadvantages to Medicare Advantage. Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck and you bet I've gone green and I'm trying to convince you and millions of others to do it so we can build a movement powerful enough uh, to not only uh, ensure healthcare is a human right and uh, change our healthcare system, but also to address the climate crisis, to dismantle the corporate empire. I mean, I really am an unabashed, peaceful revolutionary. I believe it is possible to restructure society and not just possible that we can actually do it. We're talking to Dr. Anna Malino. Uh, Dr. Malino, uh, my friend Anna, uh, who I've known uh, way back in the day, as we say, uh, uh, Dr. Malino spent three decades working as a pediatrician with immigrant, refugee, and underserved children across this country. She's the past president of Physicians for a National Health Program. Today, she's the lead organizer for National Single Payer and the movement to end privatization of Medicare. You can find out more about her work and about the single payer movement at nationalsinglepayer.com. Uh, Anna, I do want to let you know that uh, you you did, a, a, once again, you've solicited a lot of good conversation in, in the comment section. Uh, I do want to say that uh, uh, Z Manny uh, came in and said Medicare for all is a valuable example of a bill that captures the problem overall and shows how to respond comprehensively and focus the conversation uh, to set example of how to overhaul other industries. And I think that's an astute observation. I mean, the the approach that the Medicare for all is doing is to say 
here is a problem. And rather than piecemeal it, here is the comprehensive solution. Uh, do you think Z Manny has got it right? Oh, she's right on the money. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, I, I think that if we were to be able to achieve a national single payer program here in the United States, can you imagine what that would do to all of the other activists that are fighting for social justice, um, you know, for housing, for the environment, for the car, uh, well, against the carceral system, police. Can you imagine what kind of a, of a boost that would give us all in the social justice movement? Uh, I, I agree 100%. It, it could be a template, really, for, for other movements. You know, one thing that I do want to... Uh to sort of point out about what we're actually up against is the experience I had here in, you know, as you know, uh, Anna, you and I knew each other in Texas. I, I moved to California back in 2003, right? And when I came here, uh, there was a fight for a statewide Medicare uh, for all uh, package, a bit of legislation. And I got very excited because it got out of the state assembly or the state house of representatives. It got out of the state Senate and all it had to do was get a government uh, or the governor's signature, right? So, and to be clear, it was a comprehensive statewide Medicare for all, basically. It was not just a uh, declaration. It was actual legislation that would have enacted it. Governor Schwarzenegger, the Republican, refused to sign it. The next election cycle, Governor Brown, a Democrat, uh, got elected. And so many of us naively thought, we're in, we're, yay. And it, I got to tell you, I am still just spitting mad because we could not get that bill out of the assembly, like a committee in the assembly. And that's when I realized, oh, these neoliberal Democrats are playing political football. They don't really mean it, right? They were just advancing single payer or some of them were advancing single payer just to embarrass Schwarzenegger. Now, I know the lead sponsor was a true believer. There were so many true believers. So Dr. Malino, I got to ask, like, how is it like, how do we actually ensure that we know that we have advocates who are actually championing a single payer system? How do we make that determination? Oh, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. So, um, you know, one one of the reasons why we started a national health uh, program, a national single payer back in, in 2021, was because uh, we thought that everything was really lining up, right? We had um, a Democrat in, in the White House, Democrats in the Senate, Democrats in the House of Representatives, and a pandemic. And we thought, you know, this, this is it. Uh, and uh, we are really going to be able to, to get this moving. And yet that really did not happen at all. In fact, what we were told is to go back to our state uh, legislatures, back to the state and see uh, if we could pass state single payer bills um, at the state level. And so, um, and then, you know, and that didn't happen either. Right? So I think, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know yeah. how you, you how you tell, honestly. I um, I think you obviously want to make sure that you elect the right people um, and then that they uh, stay true to their word. You know, and I, I got to say, this is one of the things that 
I think that Bernie Sanders uh, inspired such a momentum, a grassroots momentum uh, back in 2016 uh, and then again in 2020 is because he had a lifetime of advocating uh, for not just social justice issues and racial justice issues broadly, but healthcare as a human right was one of those things. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I talked about uh, my experience in California and you talked about your experience under Biden, it, like, and then I, I am reminded, oh, I forgot. But during Obama, when Obama first came in, I remember I had colleagues from the Physicians for a National Health Plan who wanted to testify at the hearings and literally they would not, they arrested doctors and nurses at the committee hearing rather than allow them to even testify. And this is what, uh, like, I, I really, like, again, this is not to be jaundiced. This is to say, let's be clear eyed about the fact that, like, if we don't build a movement that is politically conscious and educated and is engaged uh, and willing to be disruptive, we're going to fall for the okie doke. And to me, I think that this, like, I'm answering my own question, really. Like, to me, we need a movement that is broad, but deep and committed. And one of the things that makes me excited about single pay, the nationalsinglepayer.com is the level of clarity that y'all have about what the demand is. And you've got a program to educate people. So, Anna, I want to make sure to give you a little bit of time about talking about some of the upcoming uh, uh, efforts that y'all have, because I want to make sure that our listeners and viewers have a chance to hear about those. Uh, thank you, David. Yes, I would love to be able to tell you about the things that we do in National Single Payer. So um, we have several campaigns. Uh, one of the campaigns is really, really interesting, and I'd like to take a minute to talk about. It's a campaign that started in Dunn County, Wisconsin, um, which put the... Um, uh, a non-binding referendum on the ballot, on a national ballot. And the, the referendum was a question. Do you believe that the national government or the federal government should be responsible for the healthcare needs of, of uh, the residents in the United States? And the, the thing that made this really interesting is that they did this in Dunn County, which went for Trump, with vote, which voted for Trump in 2016 and in 2020. And the referendum won in Dunn County. And that just goes to show you that this is not about red or blue or purple. This really is about people. Now, the, the, a very similar referendum was passed in two counties in Illinois as well. And uh, we are working with, with activists, as I said, you know, we're a grassroots organization that works locally to pass national single payer. And we're working with, with activists in a, in a tiny little county in, uh, in Kentucky uh, that I think went like 90% for Trump uh, and then also in Western Pennsylvania. And so that's one of the campaigns that we have where we're trying to uh, educate our activists to go basically door knocking because that's that's the kind of deep canvassing campaign that you need where you can start to educate people about what a national health program would, would look like for them. So that's one of the campaigns that, that we have that, that we're really um, excited about. Um, the other campaign that we have uh, that um, are sort of uh, local campaigns uh, or that we try to elevate local campaigns is that we are um, helping uh, 
you know, very, very peripherally with the um, campaign that's happening with the New York City municipal retirees that are being forced by their union to uh, to uh, sign up for Medicare Advantage instead of their traditional Medicare, which is what they were promised for all the years that that they were working um, uh, under the municipal government. And so that's really, really an exciting, and I urge all of your viewers to look this up, the New York City Municipal Retirees, uh, the, the kind of work that they're doing and the, and, and the battles that they're winning uh, against uh, actually Mayor Adams and uh, the New York City um, mayor's office and their unions and their uh, former employers that are trying to push them into these Medicare Advantage plans that, again, would have narrow networks and prior authorizations and so forth. So no, that, go ahead. No, well, I, I, I want to make sure to give you time to circle back to the next one, but I, I also want to lift up and invite Jackrabbit, uh, our producer, into the conversation because he and I were literally just talking about how we need to make sure uh, to get away from the toxic, you know, uh, like like as if left right has any real meaning, at least amongst the corporatists. And thank you, Z Manny. I'm going to use corporates instead of neoliberals because I think it's probably a more accurate uh, uh, definition, right? But this idea that they're trying to pit quote the left and the right against each other, when if you actually break it down on things that people want and policies like healthcare is a human right. There's actually a broad level of support across ideological frameworks, right? And so I don't know about you, Jack, but when I was hearing Anna, I was reminded of our uh, conversation from just a couple of days ago. Oh, you're muted. That's the the, the refrain of COVID. <laughs> you're you're on mute. You're on uh, mute. Anna, thank you so much for for being here with us. I, I'm so it's great to be talking to you. And you know, uh, I'm coming on. Because, well, for one thing, I'm super angry hearing all the stuff you're talking about. And I'm sure that's like the people who are listening probably feel the same way. I mean, just like talking about this stuff is so infuriating because it's so mean spirited, barbaric and, and cruel, really, when it comes down to it. As soon as you scratch the surface of normality, um, you know, it becomes just absolutely like unconscionable. Um, but, you know, I, I really I, I love that you guys were talking about this. I, I feel like what David's story about what happened in California with Schwarzenegger versus Governor Brown really illustrates to me what has become more and more clear as you know as we've come to our present moment and we've seen what like what the two major pol political parties have turned into just like this these this tribalism this Trump derangement syndrome where like actual policies have just been be, you know they're just lost they're just like gone into a, like a black hole of like politicking it's a nightmare, right? And so, you know, I, I, I think of like, this does not surprise me to hear David's story. I think of Kamala Harris, who's clearly just like this neoliberal shill, like a, an empty shell, but she's, you know, signed on to the to Bernie's Medicare for all bill, right? As if she really cared about it, as if it was something that mattered to her. No, she was from California. She's a, like a liberal politician. She knows who she's appealing to. And so she's using that kind of like as a cover or a mask uh, you know and and so of course you know there's there's this fear and this the challenge that we have because you know powerful democratic politicians powerful republican politicians whatever they're going to say in the same way that like trump claimed to be like you know supporting the regular person 
which is obviously was absurd in the same way that like, you know, the Democrats can say that they support regular people and the same, they're also bullshitting. They're also totally full of crap. So what it comes down to is, and you know, is, you know, what we need to do is we need to leverage power. That leveraging power is only going to come from building a coordinated national movement. That's why I really appreciate where you're coming from with this. Right. Because, you know, it's it's only through leveraging power and it's only by holding politicians accountable to what we demand from them that we're going to see any change. Right. At, at the national level, there needs to be a national organizing. Right. I'm sorry. I, there's it, it's too much. I, I need to bring it down a notch and just say there's people who are watching who are equally fired up about this. They're disgusted, tired of business as usual. My question to you my prompt to you is just like people who want to get engaged they want to get involved what can they do how can they do it they're just watching this show they're listening to this show they love what you're talking about what can they do to make a difference well thank you jack for for that question and uh, the opportunity to tell you and others what you all can do so national single payer um, is, is a grassroots organization. And what we do is we try to elevate these local campaigns, but we also educate. And so we, um, the second Wednesday of the month, we have educational webinars. And I'd love to talk with you about the educational webinar that's coming up on October 11th. And if you wanted to, to put that up there, uh, there is a link that people can use to register for the event. You have to register. It's going to be, um, it's, um, it's called the um, Libby Medicare and the Public Health Emergency in East Palestine. So a few things. Uh, I think many of us are aware of the train, trail, uh, train derailment that occurred in East Palestine, which poisoned not only East Palestine, but the surrounding um, cities and localities uh, in, in, uh, in Ohio and in, in, even into Pennsylvania through the burning of the vinyl chloride. And, um, and what does that have to do with Medicare for All and for Libby, Montana? And um, David, you brought up uh, how uh, single-payer activists were not even allowed to testify during the ACA, the Affordable Care Act hearings, uh, because yes, they, they, um, doctors and nurses were arrested instead of being allowed to, to mention and talk about single-payer. But one thing that happened during the ACA, which most people don't remember or maybe don't even realize, is that Max Baucus, who was the chair of the Finance Senate Committee that, that wrote the ACA, actually wrote into the Affordable Care Act a very small little section that um, is uh, known as 1881, I believe. Uh, 1881A. And what that does is it gave the residents of Libby, Montana, which is a city where the senator happens to be from, the ability to qualify for Medicare because they have been exposed to asbestos. And um, the, the story is long and we don't have time to, to get into it, but this, this is a, uh, an area that had been poisoned by um, a private industry mine that poisoned 
all of the people in that area with asbestos. And over the years, uh, many, many, many of them came down with asbestosis and lung problems and, and many other um, issues related to the exposure to asbestos. And Max Baucus knew that the only way that these individuals in Libby, Montana, were going to be able to have any kind of access to health care for, for the crime that had been perpetrated against them was to have them be automatically eligible for Medicare, no matter what their age, right? They could be 20, 25, 35, 50. They did not need to qualify for Medicare by age, they would automatically get it if they could just prove that they were living in that area and that had been that they had been exposed to asbestos. So what that little section did is it set up the possibility that for um, uh, a locality, a city, a county that is being exposed to these environmental disasters and that they can, first of all, prove that that they that that their health is uh, being impacted by this environmental toxic exposure, then they could possibly be eligible for Medicare. So we're calling this Libby Medicare because Libby Montana did get Medicare as a result of this little tiny section in the Affordable Care Act. And why can't it also be used for residents of East Palestine? And so on October 11th, we've uh, invited um, Jessica Con uh, Connard, who is uh, an activist in, in her city of East Palestine, who's going to be talking to us about the train derailment, about the health effects, about a public health emergency that needs to be declared by President Biden, uh, and uh, about getting Libby Medicare for, for their residents. So that's October 11th. It's at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern. And I think that uh, you all uh, have the link there that's been dropped in the chat and you can register for this. So that's one thing that people can do. And then that's the the, uh, the second uh, Wednesdays of the month. That's what we do. We have educational webinars and we just raise awareness about these kind of things. And uh, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to um, have activists from poison communities all over the country, including East Palestine, suffering from environmental health emergencies to also raise the demand for an emergency health order and Libby Medicare for their own communities. So that's happening October 11th. And then the other thing that I'd like to tell people about is, well, two other things. One is on the fourth Wednesday of the month, we have what we call the National Single Payer Working Group meetings. And that's when we get down to the joy of actually doing the work that you need to do as activists and organizers and mobilizers to, to achieve national single payer. And so that, that's a much more open forum and a lot of discussion where we, where we talk about our campaigns and how to elevate what what people uh, are doing in their own communities. We also have a podcast, a uh, new podcast, and uh, I encourage people to listen to it. It's called The Real McCoy uh, for Healthcare, and it's with uh, Dr. Claire Cohen. Claire is a good friend of mine. Uh, she is a black child psychiatrist in uh, Pittsburgh and uh, puts on a really, really great podcast. So it's called The Real McCoy, and she explains why it's called the real McCoy in her podcast. So I would encourage people to to do both uh, all, all of those. Well, thank you so much for bringing us uh, all of those different opportunities. And as Anna said, I did in fact drop the link into the chat. But if you are listening to the podcast or 
you're watching us or listening to us after the fact and you don't have access uh, to the chat function itself, simply go to the website nationalsinglepayer.com. That's nationalsinglepayer.com. You can sign up uh, on their email list. You can get uh, up to their latest updates. They put out a monthly events and newsletter that actually gives you very practical ways for how to build the necessary ground game to put single payer healthcare front and center as a political issue. Because I'll tell you, friends, like we're only going to get uh, what we're organized to take and demand. I often will quote uh, one of the great political thinkers in the U.S., uh, Frederick Douglass, who said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. And I'll do the, I'll paraphrase the longer part because I think this is pretty important, y'all. Douglas goes on to say, you show me how much injustice a people are willing to tolerate and I will show you the exact amount of injustice that will be visited upon them. And to me, like this is really important. It's back to Jack's point. We have got to have the political courage and the political clarity to hold politicians accountable, to let them know that this is our demand. And if they're not willing to champion healthcare as a human right at the federal level, then they should not be our federal representatives, period, end of story. And that's something that can be done across ideologies. The second political philosopher that I want to quote, and I want to give a shout out to my mama because my mama introduced me to this political philosopher. Her name is Lily Tomlin. And Lily Tomlin famously said, you know, no matter how angry I get, it's hard to keep up with these bastards. <laughs> and it really does, like the, the level of chicanery, the level of, of just outrage that the ruling elite are, are pulling on us and I'm going to say it again, I'm going to repeat Jack, the kind of tribalism, the us versus them that the ruling elite are playing on us is actually to our detriment. If we actually are serious about winning a new world, we're going to have to reach across ideologies and build a class conscious movement. I don't mean socioeconomic class. Like, I mean the people who own the means of production, the owning predatory class versus the rest of us. They get us arguing with each other over things that we have very little agency over. But if we actually unite as a class and get politically conscious, we can win a new world. And so again, and I like this hour has just flown by, but I do want to give you a chance for any final thoughts uh, here on either the national single payer movement, uh, anything that's come up in this conversation? So, I mean, I think the the final analysis is that uh, the health of a nation cannot be held hostage to the profits of corporations. I think we need to loop back into um, Naomi Klein's um, uh message to us that our healthcare system should be a manifestation of our values and our values should not be corporate prof 
profits. Our values are to take care of each other, the solidarity that, that we need, the, the love, the kindness, all of those uh, shared values that we have, and that should be at the center of, of our healthcare system. And so um, I, I think that this is uh, a really, really Im important conversation that we're having because the only way we're going to get this is through a national movement. Uh, we, we have to, just as you said, we have to stop thinking about our differences. We need to stop splintering ourselves in, in, into multiple different organizations and, and, uh, and really demand uh, uh, the healthcare system that we need and that we deserve. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Anna Malino. Uh, I'm David Cobb, the host of Redneck Gone Green. We've been talking to Dr. Anna Malino. Uh, she is the national organizer for the national single payer movement to end privatization of Medicare. Uh, check them out at nationalsinglepayer.com. Remember, we come to you every week here on Redneck Gone Green. I'm very excited to say that next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be joined by rock and folk singer Carsey Blanton. If you don't know Carsey, you're in for a treat. Uh, Carsey is the one, by the way, uh, who on national uh, uh, media called out Joe Manchin uh, 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 in West Virginia. She's a She's an amazing singer, and, I, and uh, a shout out to my partner, Ruthie, who turned me on uh, to Carsey Blotton. I've become a little bit of a fanboy uh, because I do believe that the, the, the need for art and culture and joy, which Anna talked about a little bit earlier, is so very important to what we're doing. And I want to conclude to remind you that here at Redneck Gone Green, our audience is getting larger, stronger, and better organized every week. And it's because of you liking, commenting, and sharing. It, I want to ask you, please do that. It means so much to us because it helps get these vital conversations in front of more people. Uh, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank uh, Dr. Anna Malinos, and I want to thank you, the listener, viewer of Redneck Gone Green. Let's fight for the world that we so desperately need and so richly deserve. Peace. <laughs>